You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Can we still control an out-of-control COVID spread? We reached back out to a tracking expert from the East-West Center. Tim Brown is an epidemiologist who last week cautioned the public about how risky it is to be out and about with community spread now growing. The surge in positive cases is particularly alarming here on Oahu. Brown has a very sobering viewpoint and is another voice highly critical of state health officials. Reports about weekend testing uh, gave a snapshot of the growing number of people who say they were exposed to a positive COVID-19 case and now need to get tested. My take is it's pretty much out there everywhere in the community. If you even just look at the, the media reports that are showing up on a routine basis, you know, it's okay, two people at this first Hawaiian branch, three people over here, 15 people at City Hall. You know, it's like, you know, every day there's like eight or nine different little, oh, we found an infection here, we found an infection there. And those are the ones that are getting reported. So, you know, for every one of those, there's probably 10 more out there that were didn't want to report it to the press or didn't want to let the media know. Because not everybody wants to be transparent about this. They're worried about frightening away customers and so on. But I think that, yeah, it's very widespread in the community at this point. That's the real challenge. We hadn't seen anything in the prison and only a few long-term care homes, elderly homes. We hadn't really seen anything at the emergency shelters, homeless shelters. But now we are. Well, I think that that's the frightening thing about this particular virus. It basically spreads very, very rapidly. If you get one infected person and then they're in an area where they're basically sharing a breathing space with 10 or 15 other people, they can very easily infect those people if they're not wearing a mask and keeping distance. Even if they are wearing a mask, if you're indoors long enough with somebody who is, you know, breathing out coronavirus, then they're clearly at this point, I think, is aerosol spread. And so, you know, it can build up within an indoor place if the ventilation is not good. And so it may just be wafting around in the air for several hours and you just... If you're in there long enough, you breathe in enough virus to eventually become infected. I think, you know, one thing you need to understand, just getting one virus is probably not going to infect you. We don't know the actual number of viruses that it takes with coronavirus to infect people. But normally for most viruses, it's, you know, 100 to 1,000 sort of viruses have to get into you before it can overwhelm your immune system enough that it basically can infect you. So basically the longer you spend indoors at those places where you're breathing COVID aerosols, the greater your chance that, you know, you're going to build a a high enough load that you'll eventually get infected. So it's another reason why if you're going indoors, don't stay long. Stay as short a period of time as you possibly can and get out again. And then if you have to leave your home? Wear your mask. Keep your distance. If somebody's coming at you without a mask, move away from them. I mean, just extreme caution is called for right now because like you were saying, I mean, it's pretty much everywhere. It's at the supermarkets. It's at the stores. It's in the workplaces. And so if If you're not taking precautions, then you potentially could contract COVID. And I know you were saying that there's 50 people in the drugstore, that there's a chance there's somebody walking around with COVID. Right. Well, I mean, at that point, we were talking about 2,000 active cases, I believe. Now we've got about 3,000 active cases, which means probably about 30,000 people infected on the island, on Oahu. And that's about 3% of our population. So, you know, now it's about 1 in 33, 35. But fundamentally, there's a lot of infection out there. And so if you're not really taking precautions, you probably are going to run into somebody who's infected. And the other critical thing to remember is most of many, half of those people will not even know they're infected. They won't have any symptoms at all. You know, and that's because CDC estimates about 40% are asymptomatic through the whole illness. They never develop symptoms. And another 10 to 20% are pre-symptomatic. They're in the period before they're going to develop symptoms, but they can still spread virus. And so about 50% of the time, the people spreading the virus won't even have symptoms. And so they have no way of knowing that they're infected. And, you know, that may make them feel justified in not wearing a mask. But in reality, everybody needs to be wearing one because we don't know who's infected and who's not infected, including ourselves. I've read that, what, it's potentially, you know, 48 hours before you even exhibit any symptoms uh, when you do that you're contagious. Right. Well, the average incubation period is about a little over five days. So the average person will develop symptoms on about a five-day time frame. Some people go as long as 14 days before developing symptoms. Others can develop symptoms in two to three days, but the average is around five. But the studies have shown that basically probably for about two days before you develop symptoms, you are infectious. There's enough virus, you're you're shedding enough virus that you could infect somebody. So really there's only probably a two to three day period at most after you get infected when you're not shedding enough virus to infect somebody. And then after that, you go through a period of probably seven to eight days where you are putting out enough virus to spread the infection. 
And then after that, the virus drops down to a lower level again because the immune system is starting to get it under control. And at that point, you're probably not infectious anymore. You're very mildly infectious. But it's that period just before you develop symptoms to maybe five days, six days after you develop symptoms, that's when you're most likely to be spreading the virus out there. And your background is with HIV. Can you talk about contact tracing and and that disease versus COVID? Well, contact tracing, I mean, it's, it's the same general concept, okay? In both cases, you're trying to take a person where you've detected an infection. You know, if HIV, in HIV, we do it through a test. With COVID, we generally do it through a test. Although, you know, I mean, you can also make a presumptive diagnosis of COVID based on the symptoms and potential exposure to another person with COVID, and then you could initiate contact tracing even without testing in that case. But generally, you know you've got somebody who's infected. And the purpose of contact tracing is to try to find, first of all, who's the source infection where they got infected? And second, who else have they potentially passed the infection onto? The real goal is to find out who have been close contacts. In the case of HIV, we're normally looking for either sexual contacts or needle-sharing contacts. For example, drug users who have shared needles with one another. And that, that would be your definition of a close contact with HIV. And then what you'd do, you would ask them to tell you who those people were, and then you would confidentially you know, contact those people, inform them that they potentially have been exposed to HIV, ask them to get a test, and then if they test positive, then you further trace their contacts. Now, we haven't tended to use contact tracing as much in HIV just because we find that doing more community testing sort of programs is actually much better in terms of reaching the populations at greater risk, and also because it's sex and drug-related behaviors it's very difficult to get people to really tell you who their contacts were. They're very reluctant to do that. With COVID, it's the same general idea. So somebody tests positive, and you're trying then to identify, okay, where did they get the infection from? Because it's entirely possible that they contracted the infection from somebody. I mean, the definition with COVID is within two meters of the person, within six feet of the person for 15 minutes or longer. Okay, that's the Official definition of close contact, I believe, Department of Health is using right now. So fundamentally, you're looking for anybody who meets that definition. So, you know, if you sat down at the dinner table with your family, probably everybody at that dinner table pretty much meets the definition. If you sat down at a restaurant and you were talking with somebody across the table and they were two or three feet away from you, they definitely will meet that definition. And so you want people to tell you the contacts that they've had like that. Then you get those people tested and get them into isolation as well because there are two possibilities there. One is one of them may actually be the source infection, the person from whom that other person got infected, but they also may potentially be exposed by that person to COVID, so they may actually already have a COVID infection that they contracted from the individual. Because remember, they're infectious for about two days before they start showing symptoms and five or six days after that. Okay, so that's kind of the time frame you want to be looking at. Anybody they've had close contact with in that period, they may have passed the virus on to. But you also want to look for the people who might have infected them because we want to find every infection in the community that we can and then stop the transmission from that infection. That's the key. And that's why isolation is so critical with close contacts because when you find a close contact, there is a chance this person has passed it on to that person. And we really want to get them in isolation so that they're not transmitting it within the community. And again, they may be one of the asymptomatics and like I say, 40% of them probably will be asymptomatic through the whole illness. So if we don't test them, we're basically not going to know. And so the testing really has to be an important component of the contact tracing. And it's one thing we've been very weak at here. Department of Health from the first almost uniformly refused to test asymptomatic individuals. And that meant we lost opportunities basically to stop those additional transmissions from going further. And I think at the time there was a concern about lack of supplies, reagents, that kind of thing. In the very earliest days that was a concern, but here in Hawaii we got over that concern within the first month. I mean, we got to a point pretty quickly. By April, we had the capacity to test, I think, 4,000, 5,000 people a day, and we weren't testing anywhere near that many. What's your biggest fear now? Because we're in a situation where we're not real clear on how many contact tracers we have, but it seems to be far below what... Uh, has been recommended? I, I've got to honestly say, Catherine, my attitude is that we're, we're basically at the start here in Hawaii. We need to lock down again to get control over this thing. Again, I mean, you know, the 174 infections today and on a comparatively low number of tests, because the weekend usually has lower numbers of tests being reported. 
the average number in the last week has gone up to 226 now per day. So, I mean, you know, we're, we're still seeing a skyrocketing epidemic here. And we really, I think, have to lock it down. Our hospitalizations are pushing 160 now. And we're still early in that curve. I mean, that skyrocketing case curve we've seen, 10 to 15% of those people are going to end up in the hospital eventually. And so I think, you know, that's going to add another 150, 200 infections going into the hospital. Let's just say that there are people who have tested positive who maybe don't get a call from the health department and don't do the tracing. What then? I hate to say it at this point, but they should try to trace themselves. I mean, they should try contacting anybody. You know, if they've got a positive diagnosis, they should be contacting anybody that meets that definition of close contact, anybody they've spent a lot of time close to. You know, at least encourage those people to go in and get a test. Ideally, encourage them to also isolate themselves. Is it your fear, then, that those people that, that don't get the call and maybe don't know how to contact people, let's say they were at a restaurant or something, that it's just going to spread? Yes, fundamentally. I think, you know, it'll be, it'll be uncontrolled spread, and I think that's the real failure of DOH here. You know, what's, what's particularly disturbing about this is people who I did an incredibly good job back in March and April, okay, we really drove this epidemic down to close to zero. You know, we were down to the point of, like, one or two infections every second day sort of thing. So we were actually doing quite well. And then Memorial Day came, and we started to see the numbers start to climb up again. And then July 4th came, and two weeks after that, we saw this explosion. So I think that, you know, the problem is we didn't use that four months that we had to stand up a good testing program, a good contact tracing program, a good quarantine program. We still have problems with quarantine. You know, most people in quarantine are not being contacted or definitely not being contacted frequently enough by Department of Health, if at all. And so I think that, you know, there are real issues there because that quarantine is essential. Because otherwise, you know, people are, especially if, if you're an hourly wage worker, you can't afford to be off work two weeks here in Hawaii's economy, right? And so the temptation is going to be, even if you're feeling ill, you will still go into work just because... You can't afford to go without two weeks of salary. And you'll spread it. And you'll spread it. And the problem is, you know, we're not, that's where Department of Health has a critical role because they should be contacting those people, following up with them. I mean, we should also be standing up some salary support programs and so on for the people at the, at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum so that we provide them support during that period we're asking them to quarantine so that they, you know, have reason to continue. We also need to provide food support services. Because when you're quarantining, you're not supposed to be going to the supermarket to pick up food. So, you know, we should be providing those types of services. Now, with when we have students in quarantine, for example, at East West Center, we do that. There are food services available. They're provided food. It's brought to the room where they're quarantined. Those type of wraparound, so-called wraparound services that basically allow people to quarantine safely and with their basic needs met are really essential. And, again, we haven't really stood that up because we haven't even set up the quarantine effectively. And so while there's talk that the governor will institute another shutdown, uh, I don't know, do you feel it just can't come soon enough? I think it can't come soon enough. I mean, for me, soon enough would have been two weeks ago, frankly. When these numbers started going up, when we first hit that 200 a day, I mean, that was the time we should have really just shut it down at that point. You know, we're all frightened to death by this. And, and it's extremely concerned about just the lack of any decisive leadership here. That's the real problem. I mean, we need the governor to step in and say, no, we're shutting down now. I realize it's going to do economic damage, but at the same time, unless we get this under control, you know, we're not going to be able to get the economy really moving again safely. Do you think he could do a shutdown for Oahu, but maybe relax things or have more flexibility for the neighbor islands because the numbers there are still lower? I think so. I mean, Oahu at this point, I think, definitely needs a shutdown. Maui is pretty borderline. I mean, Maui's been, I think, they had nine cases yesterday, seven cases today or something. So they're, they're seeing some transmission. So, you know, Mayor Victorino might want to think about it there because their, their numbers have been going up a bit in the last week, week and a half, you know, since we had lifted the inter-island travel ban. Mm-hmm. So I do think, you know, it's, it's long past time basically to do a shutdown. But this time, we have to stand up the public health response. We've got to get our testing house in order. We've got to get our contact tracing actually working and staffed up. 
not these pseudo numbers that we've clearly been getting from the Department of Health at this point. And we need to stand up real quarantine. We should be designating quarantine hotels. And if people are quarantined at home, they should be contacted every day by the contact tracers, basically to ensure that they're adhering to the quarantine and they're staying in their location. That was a conversation we had with Tim Brown, epidemiologist at the East-West Center. The disease specialist is leading authority on tracking and prevention HIV worldwide. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Inkinen Executive Search, helping Hawaii organizations find leaders to navigate in times of change. More information at Inkinen.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Dr. Merlin Sheldrake, author of Entangled Life. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how fungi make our worlds, change our minds, and shape our futures. Sunday morning at 11. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Today's quiz is for you gamers who may remember the PC video game called Nancy Drew, The Creature of Kapu Cave. It was released over a decade ago by the Bellevue, Washington company, HER Interactive. The graphics and loading times would seem archaic by today's standards, but back in the day, it earned a five-star rating and this positive write-up. This is such a wonderful game for the beginning scientists of the future. From entomology to botany, this game has a near-perfect balance of mystery, science, and drama. Set in Hawaii, the creature of Kapu Cave is characterized as a point-and-click adventure where players take control of fictional amateur detective Nancy Drew, who is hired to be a research assistant doing field work in Hawaii. Very quickly, a devastating blight starts affecting local pineapple crops, and the mystery is afoot. Other characters include Big Island Mike Mapu and Dr. Malachi Craven, the temperamental director of the highly secretive Healy Healy Research Facility. For today's Backyard Quiz, what is the name of the entomologist who Nancy Drew is hired to assist? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app at locationshawaii.com. scientists testing out the optics of the world's largest telescope on Haleakala published the first pictures of activity around the sun. The call for proposals for time on the Daniel K. Inouye Solar Telescope by scientists had a deadline of last week Friday. We reached out to the director of the project, Thomas Rimelay, who says never in his wildest dreams did he imagine the response he got. We talked to him at his office out of Boulder on the University of Colorado campus about what happens next. We received uh, over 100 proposals, and that was a really significant turnout. I didn't expect that personally. My guess was, my optimistic guess was maybe we would get 50, 
over 100. That's a, a really spectacular turnout. So the interest is high. Yes, very high. So we're highly oversubscribed, and we now have to down-select from these 100 proposals to a much smaller number that we can actually implement. So very competitive. And yeah, so uh, how do you break out the time? How do, you, how do you break out a year? Yeah, this was only for four months, for the first month of, of observations uh, with BKIS. And what we will have to do is, is a process, it's a peer review process, uh, solely based on scientific merit. So the best scientific proposals win. They get the time on the telescope, they get the data from the telescope, and it's going to be a very competitive down-select that will take some time. And after that, we will have to prepare the implementation of these proposals, actually implement the software and, and test them out before we do the actual observations. So there's a lot of work ahead for us uh, before we can actually implement these proposals. So the proposals are just for, the, for four months? Uh, yeah, this is for a period of four months, and then... We'll have another call and collect additional proposals and uh, start the whole process over again. So how many can you handle in a four-month period? It, it depends a little bit about how much time each of these proposals requests, and we haven't really done that analysis yet. But, uh, I mean, we might be oversubscribed by a factor of 5 to 10 uh, is my, my guess at this point, and it's really just a guess. Okay. So the main thing is we've got to get the telescope up and running, and there's been yes. a bit of a delay with the COVID shutdown. So so give us a sense of, of what happened when uh, the governor ordered everything to just close up. Yeah, so that was in March. We actually uh, decided to close the construction uh, summit activities a week earlier on March 17, and we were basically shut down for almost three months before we started up summit construction activity again and we're now operating at a reduced level with uh, smaller crews but and, and less efficiency uh, because we had to implement of course all these uh, safety protocols social distancing wearing of masks cleaning and uh, sanitizing of the facility uh, all of that of course has an impact on the schedule and at this point we're looking at completing the uh, integration of the instrumentation, the scientific instruments, into the facility in spring of 21, spring next year. Barring any other shutdown, I mean, I, I know folks are, are worried because our count is rising, and we don't know what the governor might announce about a second shutdown, if it would just be for Oahu, or would it include the neighbor islands? Yeah, and of course, we're dealing with the travel restrictions that has an impact on us as well. Because currently, there are distributed projects, so some of the project staff is here in Boulder, and they haven't been able to travel out to Maui uh, basically since March. And we need some of the people from here to complete the instrument integration. Okay, so you, you need the experts, the experts and their expertise to be physically up there on the mountain. Correct, yes. We were hoping to start operations in October, but now we're looking at uh, spring next year. March, May time frame at this point. And initially, when you went out for the request for proposals, they would have theoretically started this fall? Uh, correct, yes. Wow. That was the hope. So it, it could be another six months or more. This whole COVID situation has uh, had a significant impact. Has it run up the price tag? Uh, yeah, projects delays always uh, cost money. They, we need additional funding from the National Science Foundation. And uh, they're looking into that currently. Any sense as to how much the prices might have gone up? Uh, we really can't say at this point. Uh, it, it really depends on how this all plays out, how long we really delay the project. Uh, but it's probably a significant increase. Have you been able to work on other parts of the construction of the telescope? Yes, of course. We continue work with people working from home. What people do when they are working from home is uh, design work, uh, finishing documentation, and, and so on. Uh, but we really need people on the summit, as we have them back now, to uh, complete the integration of the instrumentation. So it needs people on, on site uh, in the instrument lab inside the facility uh, integrating instrumentation to finish the construction. Is the equipment all there, and is it, you just need the expertise? Uh, that's correct. 
Yes, we have most of the equipment, uh, probably all of the equipment at this point on site. We just need uh, the people to be able to look inside the facility, uh, as I said, to integrate the implementation and finish the testing. There's a lot of testing required before we can go into operation. And the proposals that were received, did they come in based on the time that they thought they might have on the telescope? And I don't know if the telescope, you know, if the time of year affects, you know, your time on the telescope. Well, in some ways it does, yes, because, um, I mean, the atmospheric conditions vary over the year. But we made everybody aware up front that we may be looking at delays here. So the people who proposed, uh, put in their science proposals, they really uh, knew that uh, the operations could be delayed and likely will be delayed. So maybe six months, maybe a year? I hope not a year. (laughs) (laughs) I, I really hope we get into operations in spring. That was Thomas Remelay, director of Maui's Daniel K. Inouye Solar Telescope, sometimes referred to as DKIST. He was talking about the delays of the opening of the facility and the crush of proposals from scientists interested in studying our Earth's sun. We plan to check in with scientists at the Keck Observatory on the Big Island about the impact that the shutdown has had on their research as well. Honolulu Civil Beach Reality Check today highlights the fear of thousands of government workers, furloughs. It's a story reporter Kevin Dayton has been tracking. He joins us this morning from the Big Island. Hi, Kevin. Hi, how are you? Good. So you've seen this issue of furloughs from both sides from your, when you're working with the county, but also um, as a reporter. So tell us about your story today. Well, it, it's based on um, what everybody already knows, which is the basically tax collections peaked at about seven, a little bit more than seven billion in fiscal year 2019, and the latest projections are that's going to drop to something like 5.9 billion for the fiscal year, the current fiscal year, and obviously that opens up a huge problem. Um, the the background for that is that as the pandemic hit. Um, tax collections dropped about 6% last fiscal year, and they're expected to drop 12% this fiscal year, which for the state of Hawaii is really is pretty much unheard of. Um, and ever since the pandemic hit, one of the, one of the questions that I think a lot of people have been wondering about is what the impact might be on public services. And, of course, if you're a public employee, that's even more pointed because the concern is, is what happens if there are layoffs or furloughs of the public employees and, and that's generally seen as a drag on the larger economy. If, you're, if public services, if more people are getting laid off, presumably that's less money circulating in the economy and creating even more of, a, of an economic drag. Yeah. yeah, and they were talking about the furloughs at the beginning of session when, when this thing hit. Exactly. When, when this thing hit early on, um, Governor Ige proposed um, in basically a private meeting with some union leaders, he proposed uh, what was reported as a 20% furlough. That was in April. Um, and the union leaders, he, he got a tremendous pushback from that, and he ended up basically walking the proposal back and saying, uh, you know, that we, there's no immediate need for this kind of action to be taken. And then there were proposals that were floated that maybe the state could, could borrow from the federal government, and that would cover any kind of shortfall um, that, would, that would need to be filled, uh, basically, with the lost tax revenue. The problem, of course, is that we're looking at a $2.3 billion shortfall and the, 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 the state's ability to borrow from the federal government, what will end up happening is the state will have to pay back the money in three years if they use something called the Municipal Liquidity Fund. Governor Ige has said that that's just too short of a payback time. He can't be borrowing billions of dollars, and then, and then how are you going to pay it back in three years? So that's the problem that he's confronted with. Now, you dug up some information that uh, indicates that, yeah, furloughs are still on the table, but you now have a, a bit of a timeline, too. Yeah, that, and a lot of us have been, I think all of us have been sort of nagging the governor to try to get the big pieces of his financial plan. How are you going to do this? How are you going to you know, fill in a, a $2.3 billion budget hole? And what popped out um, at the beginning of this month was a submittal in support of a bond authorization for $995 million. And obviously you need to explain to your investors, you know, how are we going to repay these bonds? These are 20-year notes. Um, and the and in the fine print, basically, uh, I believe it was on footnote eight of page one hundred and two. Uh, <laughs> it sort of lays out, lays out 
that um, the, the plan is to um, impose a 10% furlough, which would work out basically to one day off without pay every two weeks, if, if my understanding is correct. And that would be part of one of the one of a number of ways that the that the governor is proposing to save money, and and come up with a balanced budget. Okay, and uh, I don't know. He hasn't said uh, much more on that, has he? No, the, uh, he he uh, didn't want to talk about it yesterday, or, or either didn't want to, or wasn't able to. I know he's a busy guy, but um, the there's some other elements in the in the documents that suggest some of the other strategies that he will be pursuing. He does plan to borrow $750 million, uh, possibly from that municipal liquidity fund that I, that I mentioned. But, of course, that has to be paid back quite quickly. Um, and they're also looking at, you know, of course, there's a hiring freeze in place, and they've already taken steps such as uh, stripping out funding for unfilled positions, restrictions on spending. And then the other big factor is that the state is not going to prepay um, uh, basically money money that the state had been planning to tuck away to cover the cost of future public worker health benefits that was going to be 388 million for this fiscal year and they're not going to prepay that now uh, the governor's um, declined to do that so and the the public sector unions I know they were they were all hoo-hoo about this I think it was the, the teachers union and uh, the Hawaii government employees association yeah, they, they um, we, we reached out to them yesterday. They declined to discuss it um, or, or, again, uh, perhaps didn't have time to discuss it. It's pretty chaotic in government and, and, and in the union world right now. But um, the sense that we're getting is that they consider this to be an issue for negotiations. And very often you'll hear from, from the unions that they're not really interested in negotiating in the media. So we weren't too surprised that we didn't hear back from them. All right. Yeah. And there, there is concern, though, though, if there are cuts that it could impact our ability to help, let's say, folks that normally get served with like human services. Right. The, the more needy people in our community. So absolutely. And that was that was a, a concern that was raised by uh, Senator Dela Cruz. Uh, you know, that if you're going to cut, don't cut there. Don't cut in human services and, and the areas that people need the most right now. OK. All right. Something to track. All right. But thanks so much, Kevin. Thank you for your time. That was reporter Kevin Dayton with today's Reality Check. Read his story online at civilbeat.org. Following our story on restarting public schools in Hawaii, we heard from you on TalkBack. Olga from Honolulu said, I am utterly appalled by the total failure by the Hawaii Department of Education to provide education to our keiki during this public health crisis. Every private school in the islands was able to swiftly retool to online instruction and offered a full-fledged fourth quarter through tools such as Zoom, Google Classroom, and IXL, complete with several hours of live classes each day, quizzes, and graded homework. Public schools, on the other hand, have done absolutely zero since March 13th. They didn't even try. Funding is clearly not the issue. An average private school in Hawaii has a smaller per-pupil budget than the Department of Education's $15,200. The Catholic school my neighbor's kids go to spends only 11000 per student's per year. Vibrant discussion and constant corrective feedback is the essence of education. Free public education at the elementary and secondary levels is a universally recognized basic human right, and it's settled international law that mere provision of access to learning materials and lectures in the absence of pupil-teacher interaction and graded homework does not amount to an education. And we heard from several teachers during the show, but they asked to remain anonymous for fear of retaliation. A 20-year veteran teacher, she says, I've never been so distressed with leadership. There's been no transparency about cases to the public. In the community I teach, active cases, yet we are told we cannot be told anything unless the learner is in our classroom. And that has to be communicated by the Department of Health or the family. The time for asking questions. The Department of Health has an agenda. It doesn't give information to the DOE. And after our call-in show on enforcing Hawaii's 14-day travel quarantine, some listeners let us know about their enforcement ideas. Hi, my name is Elizabeth. I'm calling from Kauai. We were listening to the conversation regarding enforcing the quarantine. And my husband came up with this brilliant idea of when they arrive at the airport, they get a, a bracelet like that clip-on bracelet that you get at the hospital, which is scanned into their record or file. And when their quarantine is up, 
they return the bracelet wearing it. And if they've taken it off and they're not wearing it, there's a, a hefty fine. So they have to return to check in at the end of their quarantine wearing that bracelet and maybe get a test at that time. Hi, this is Liam from Hawaii Kai. I think that the hotel should be required to hire special duty officers, famous construction sites and people that work on the road, private contractors that work on the roads have to do. And the police should set up in the lobby and make sure that whoever leaves the hotel or who's returning from the hotel is abiding by the quarantine. I think it's very simple. I think it's a win-win. It'll be more money to go to our police department, the hardworking frontline people. They can get the money that way and just charge the visitors for it. Hey, thanks for the feedback. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Reach out via social media on Facebook or Twitter or call our talkback line, 792-8217. show, we reviewed a vintage PC gaming adventure called Nancy Drew, The Creature of Kapu Cave. Designed over a decade ago, the storyline was loosely based on author Carolyn Keene's book entitled Mystery on Maui. Shortly after arriving in Hawaii to do field work as a research assistant, uh, Nancy Drew must deal with a devastating blight killing the local pineapple crops. Research soon takes a back seat to detective sleuthing. The first-person perspective and point-and-click platform allows players to question suspects, play mini-games, and solve puzzles in order to gather clues to solve the environmental disaster. All the while she's snooping and digging around, uh, digging up clues. Nancy Drew is also neck deep in researching bugs and plants as she assists entomologist Dr. Quigley Kim. And that was the answer we were looking for today. And congratulations to Lana from Kona. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it. Talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to reconnect with the art and museum spaces until 9 p.m. on Pauhana Friday evenings through September 11th. HonoluluMuseum.org. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, you wouldn't expect to find economic activity among fish, would you? They will actually tailor their level of service uh, depending on the competition. Also, life lessons from the reluctant futurist Kevin Kelly. Being enthusiastic is worth 25 IQ points. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. This evening at 7, following Counterspin. In-person instruction was pushed back for many of Hawaii's schools this week, and so more and more students are coming to grips with receiving their education online. For many, this has been an obstacle that educators across the state have been dealing with since the beginning of the pandemic, as we heard. But for Robert Landau of Impact Schools, online was the plan all along. The veteran educator is spearheading a new kind of curriculum for a small number of students across the state. Impact School looks to educate cohorts of schools through a mix of online instruction, and extracurricular civic engagement. He spoke with the Conversations' Harrison Patino about the program's rollout and what it hopes to achieve. For the most part, students are getting up in the morning and they're going someplace, and when they get there, they're in a building where they spend most of their time following a schedule that is published, and each day and each hour of that day, they're going from adult to adult who is in charge of their learning. And then that adult who has to stretch that course out over the eight, nine months is extending with assignments and 
papers and homework and tests and quizzes. And so it has been called a factory model for many, many years. And what sets impact apart is that we don't have a brick and mortar location. We don't have teachers teaching subjects. We've left that job to an online high school that has been designed over decades to fulfill a high school diploma wherever that student may live anywhere in the world. So it's pretty straightforward and it is not teacher directed, especially in this current time of the pandemic. We are focusing the majority of our time on the real uh, work and topics and areas that are impacting our young people's future. So what I'm saying is we leave the school part to a very small percentage of our program and we use the majority of our students' time looking at what we call our five pillars, which is focusing on the challenges and opportunities of their future. Now, some people are saying that online schooling is really going to be the way of the future as we adapt to COVID going forward. Now, with something like impact that seems more niche as opposed to a more en masse approach, where do you think online schooling fits in as we look towards the future of education? Well, you know, right now, uh, the schools have had to revert to what they're calling hybrid learning. It's what we call synchronous and asynchronous time. So the synchronous time is when they're with a teacher or a, an adult or maybe working as a group together, and then the asynchronous time when they're on their own. What's happening to a lot of students now is that asynchronous and synchronous time is just haphazard. It's all over the place. Sometimes they're making the students work online all day, period to period, which is, wow, can you imagine? <laughs> and then others, it's undetermined. You're sometimes online and you're most of the time offline. We're kind of just reverting back to the fact that there's been online high school programs for decades. There's lots of choices. There's lots of them up there. We're partnering with two schools that we think is a pretty straightforward way to do the course and credit work. But we think the course and credit work is just one small percentage of what a real education should be in the first three. And we think a real education is what the students are doing in the real world. And impact is giving that synchronous time to being out and about, researching, working with experts, doing internships and apprenticeships, and really taking advantage of the world around us as their educational classroom. Well, building on that, you mentioned we need an education system that is solution-based and future-focused. What do you mean by that in your own words? The reality is that if you look at the four major areas that impact our life, health, the environment, our social system, and our economic system, all of them are kind of under siege at the moment. Every day we're worried about our economic future. We're worried about our planet's future. We're worried about health. Look at what we're going through now. And over the last several months, we have been impacted by our whole social inequity and inequality. And so those four areas are under siege. And if I were a eight-year-old, I would be saying, hey, adults, what are you doing? We're going to be 40 years old, and you've depleted all four of those areas for the future of my life. And so we think that young people should have agency. They should have ownership of their future by what they are doing in their education system. And so that's what we're trying to acknowledge is that adults from the 20th century are trying to shape an education for children of the 21st century. You know, I find it very interesting and it's going to be pretty incredible that our first 21st century teachers are going to come online in the next couple of years. So 21st century students are being taught by 21st century teachers. Now, it seems like the foundation of impact schooling is really built upon these core pillars that you've identified, and they seem a little bit more complex than just what reading or arithmetic might cover. Yes, but they are definitely aligned from one to five, and they follow a course of what we think a real 21st century education should be. I'll just go through them really quickly. So it starts with culture and identity. We think that the most important first learning of anyone should be answering four questions. Who am I? And that encompasses, you know, where do I come from, my ancestry, what makes me who I am, so that you really can celebrate that and understand it. The next question for culture and identity is who are we? You know, I want to have appreciation for my friends and for my schoolmates and for my, you know, anybody I meet, I should be able to say, who are you? I want to know about you. I want to appreciate you. The next is where am I? 
impact is going to be truly INA-based. The cohorts are community-based, and they really are going to be able to look at their community and say, this is our classroom, this is what we need to focus on. And then the fourth is, what's out there? What's beyond my shores? You know, especially here in Hawaii, we need to be globally aware, not just what we call civically engaged. Once you understand, you know, who I am, who we are, and so on, we then need to know how things work. We really think that today there's an absence of what we call civics and social justice education. A lot of schools do it, but it's maybe a part of what they do. But once we understand who we are, we need to, like, understand how do things work, why don't they work, how can things be improved. And we want our students to spend time at the legislature, attending city council meetings, meeting with the mayor, having an appointment with the governor. And they should be able to say, I need to know how things work. Then you move to stewardship and global issues. Once you understand how things work, let's look at why things don't work, what's wrong. And we're going to be following the United Nations 17 Sustainable Development Goals, which the state of Hawaii has certainly taken an interest in. And we want to look at those very issues that are impacting our young people's future. Stewardship is about protecting and serving our planet and each other. And global issues is finding solutions. But it's not just finding old solutions, which takes us to number four, innovation and entrepreneurship. In order to solve the problem of tomorrow, we need to focus on being innovative and entrepreneurial finding new ways of delivering old problems. And the real learning is number five. They need to be engaged, and they need to be engaged most of the time, and that's why we focus on internships and apprenticeships. Now, Robert, if we could circle back quickly to that notion of teaching civics and social justice in the classroom, because that seems particularly pertinent to the current day. Civic engagement and social justice are really two of the most pressing issues facing young people today. When we take history classes or current event classes, we really just go and surface level. In order to understand how our government works, we have to be in the government. We have to see the government at work. And so during a typical day, you might take a field trip to the legislature or you might go once a year. But we want our young people who are calling our impact agents We want them to have lots of time to be able to observe and participate. And the only way to do that is to actually be there. This is not theoretical. And once they understand how the government works, they can ask the question, why? Why does it have to be that way? Why are politicians working in a particular way that may not serve our best interests in the future? And instead of just protesting or complaining, we want our impact agents to be informed. And the way to be informed is to be knowledgeable and to see things in action. I believe that it's not about an adult spooning out knowledge. It's about our young people understanding what they need to know, do, understand, and then finding the pathway to get them there and getting the agency and the ownership of of the outcomes. This may not be for everyone, but I certainly know from my experience and from traveling around the world, looking at other schools that capture some of these things, that it's for a lot of young people and it's the way they, they will learn and experience school the best way possible. Well, it's interesting you bring up agency. The thing I notice is that students within the impact system are referred to as agents. I'm just curious why the distinction. Well, because, uh, and it's, by the way, it's not a James Bond movie or something like that. It really is the, this point that we, we believe that the agency or ownership of education should be in the hands of the student. So that's why there are the impact agents working with the impact guide. They are going to decide using the five pillars where they want to focus and where they want to concentrate and where they want to fulfill our vision, which is being prepared for the challenges and opportunities of the future. So that needs to be in the hand of the agent to have the ownership, the agency to be able to to do that. And I have never been disappointed in my whole career by the power of young people to be able to make those decisions and to take on that responsibility. It is amazing what young people can do given the opportunity, and I can give you example after example. Now, the program itself is available to up to 20 students per island. Is that an issue with capacity, or do you, that's, do you see that number rising in the future? Well, it's actually 20 students per cohort. So we actually see this as a pop-up model where one cohort might be on West Oahu, and then we get 15 or so more interests on the windward side, and then a guide will then take on that group. So we are starting small, where we're looking to create 
three cohorts on three islands. But if uh, if we're fortunate to get the backing and the following to, to do this further, then we're happy to have cohorts anywhere. Now, we've been talking a lot about these issues that the students of Hawaii's future are going to need to engage with, whether that's sustainability, civic engagement, legislative involvement. In your own words, what do you think the biggest issue that Hawaii's future generations are going to have to contend with in their schools, whether or not it's traditional schooling, something like impact? What are we going to have to teach our kids? Well, I think we're going to have to teach our kids that we are isolated and we're an island. And the way for us to succeed in the future is to love and appreciate where we are so much that whatever you do, you're going to come back and you're going to invest in the future of this place you call home. I was very fortunate to have worked at a program in Cambodia where we selected local students from the provinces and gave them an education like impact. They just graduated actually and how much they want to pay forward and go back into their community and give back what they were given. So I think The future of any place like Hawaii is that we invest in the human capital of our young people and give them such a love and appreciation to protect and serve the economic, social, environmental, and health of the future generations that they will use this impact education and whatever they do after that and return home to use what they've learned to ensure a bright future for Hawaii. That was Impact School CEO Robert Landau speaking with Conversations Harrison Patino on how the program differs from traditional schooling methods across the state. The program is aimed at 9th and 10th graders and will launch on August 24th. That wraps it up for today. Tomorrow, we plan to talk about local research on a COVID vaccine. We would like to hear from you. Are you a state worker worried about possible furloughs or someone who tested positive and is waiting for a call from the health department? You can call or talk back line at 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.